Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week 10 of our study in the work and life of Jesus Christ. And today we are going to look at one of the two most pivotal portions of his ministry, which is why we're able to enjoy the salvation that we have today, and that is his crucifixion. Now, before we actually read the crucifixion story that is found in the book of Matthew, even though all of the Gospels have a version of it, I think it would be best that we create a little bit of context. And what better place to do that than in the Old Testament? Because remember that many times Jesus prophesied that the Old Testament was talking about him leading up to this point. His death and his resurrection had been prophesied for hundreds, if not thousands of years before he came and did it. So before we go into the New Testament, let's see what the Old Testament has for us on the death and crucifixion of the Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. And we'll begin in verse 13. The word says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Another piece of scripture that is attributed to the Messiah that is usually referenced to is Psalm chapter 22. So please go ahead and turn there. The word says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of man and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You have made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, 
he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So this is what we would call the crucifixion account in the Old Testament. These were direct prophecies that were fulfilled through Jesus Christ at the time he was crucified. They seem to be his very words when he was on that cross, right? So there is something significant about this that we have to consider. And with this context in mind, it is time to look at the actual crucifixion account and see what conclusions and comparisons we can draw. So in your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 27, and we will begin in verse 24 with the crucifixion account. The word says, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And if I may pause for a second, I don't think they realized what they said, because that is very literally true. His blood shall be upon them and their children for their salvation. Yet they didn't understand that. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after having tasted it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head they put the charge against him, which read, 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If I may interject, that sounds a lot like Satan, right? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Prove it. Prove who you are. But Jesus is much greater than that. Verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour which, if I may interrupt one more time, the sixth hour today would be considered 12 noon, and the ninth hour would be about 3 p.m. So you're talking about darkness being in the middle of the day for hours on end, which may have been an eclipse or something like that, but ultimately it was miraculous. Verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now that we have looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament side by side, we can see that there are some parallels, and there are some correlations between the two. As we have discussed in previous weeks, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Scripture. All of the scripture is written for him and about him. 
He confirms this at the end of the Gospel of Luke, that everything that was written in the Psalms and the Law of Moses and the Prophets was pointing to him. And he, on this pivotal day, a singular point in time that was foretold since eternity past, was now here. And our Savior died for our sins once for all time. There is so much to explore on this, and I don't think we'll do any of it justice today, but we'll try to encapsulate as much as we can. So there's no denying that the redemptive work of God reached its apex through the crucifixion. When he was nailed on that cross and he bore the penalty due to us, that was the greatest work of the Lord. His crucifixion was an act of propitiation, which is really a word we don't use very often outside of church. But what this means is that he was an acceptable substitute in satisfying the justice of God. So when Jesus Christ sacrificed his life for you, God accepted his sacrifice and his wrath was dissolved. He is no longer angry with his people. He who belonged to him will be spared from his wrath because of what happened on the cross. His justice has been satisfied. So what I'd like for us to walk away with today after we complete this study is to not only be able to explain how Christ was our propitiation on the cross, but also to be able to explain what it means for Christ to be our Redeemer. There's a quote that I want to share with you from D.A. Carson. So listen to what he says in regards to the crucifixion. In pagan propitiation, a human being offers a propitiatory sacrifice to make a God propitious. In Christian propitiation, God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitiation to make himself propitious. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. God is the one who provides the sacrifice precisely as a way of turning aside his own wrath. God the Father is thus the propitiator and the propitiated, and God the Son is the propitiation. If you want to look at a parallel Go back to the book of Genesis and read the account of when Abraham took his son Isaac onto Mount Moriah, which today is where the temple of Solomon was built. He took his son there to sacrifice him at the command of the Lord, his only son. And when the time came for him to actually commit the sacrifice, the Lord stopped him and provided an acceptable substitute, a ram whose horns were caught in the bulrushes. And that is what he used to satisfy the offering. But he also did it to test Abraham's resolve. Would he actually go through with it? And he did. That faith was credited to him as righteousness. You can see some parallels how Jesus is the acceptable substitute. In the same way that God provided an acceptable substitute for Abraham, God provided an acceptable substitute for us, and that is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said that he was determined 
to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So what Paul was saying is that in the crucifixion, we reach the zenith of the work of Christ. It is unlikely that eyewitnesses of the crucifixion realized that they were witnessing an act of atonement. They thought they were killing a criminal. But what they were actually witnessing is the deliverance of the souls of those that belong to God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a very interesting statement in verse 21. I want to read it to you very briefly here. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here he makes two different comments in reference to our justification as it relates to the work of Jesus Christ. The first thing is that in the shedding of the blood of the Messiah, there occurred an act of propitiation. That sacrifice was an acceptable substitute for your sin. The Jews who would read this would understand it in light of the Old Testament Day of Atonement. That was something that was in the law for a very long time. And what is the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement was that day when the high priest, once a year, would go and enter into the Holy of Holies, that place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And that was the only time that the high priest was allowed to go in there, because it was the most holy place. So if a high priest went in there for any other reason, or did something that was not acceptable, like touching the Ark of the Covenant, for example, then they would be zapped dead. That's why so often when the high priest would go in there, they would wrap a rope around his leg. In the event that he was killed, then they could just drag him out. So this Day of Atonement is when he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and specifically on the mercy seat, which is symbolizing the throne of God. And so this act symbolized a sacrifice of blood that was necessary in order to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And by this action, the entire nation of Israel was forgiven. Now, this was something that had to be done every year, but when Jesus did it, this was once for all, which we see throughout the writings of Paul as well as in the book of Hebrews, that this was a one-time thing, and it heals all the sins past, present, and future, all at once, where it does not need to be repeated. And that is why in one of the Gospels, it shares the last words of Jesus that he exclaims before he surrenders his life. 
and that is, it is finished, meaning there is nothing else required. All the work that God has done up until this point is complete. There's nothing lacking. In other words, the propitiation offered by Jesus Christ was an act of complete satisfaction. God does not justify people by unilateral act of forgiveness, because to do so without propitiation, this would be a violation of his justice. So it's not like he forgave the entire world and no one has to go to hell anymore, right? So even though it says God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, it also says that you have to believe him. And if you do believe him, then you will not perish and you will have eternal life. But it requires the faith. There are many Old Testament references for this, such as the Psalms and in 1 Samuel, but the book of Hebrews also reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats do not atone for sin. They don't fix anything. So what the New Testament reveals to us is that believers in the Old Testament were forgiven on the basis of the blood of Christ who was yet to come. So if you see, it's all spiritual. It is a matter of the heart. Were the people required to give sacrifices for various sins? Yes. But for you to be able to go to the temple and actually do the sacrifices, a few things had to happen. And this will sound very familiar to you when it comes to accepting salvation. The first thing that they had to do was they had to admit that they were sinning. You have to admit that you were a sinner and that you required forgiveness, and that's a big step. Secondly, you had to believe that the sacrifice would be satisfactory for your forgiveness, that the action and ritual you're performing was from the heart. If you believed in your heart that that sacrifice would forgive you, then you would go and do it. Otherwise, if you thought it was a waste of time, you would not do it. And then you would have to confess. You would have to go to the priest, and you'd have to confess to them what you did. And then you would have to give the animal that would die in your place. This is exactly the same kind of thing we do when we offer salvation to someone. I remember growing up hearing that all the time, that it was called the ABCs of accepting Christ. Admit, believe, and confess or commit, depending on your version of the ABCs. Commit your life to the Lord. Either way, that's correct, and it's accurate. There's more to it than that, but that is a good starting point. And so you see those parallels in how redemption works. And that's exactly why Christ came. He was sent to bring redemption. Now, you don't usually hear that term anywhere except in the marketplace when you're buying stuff. Redeem this coupon to get $2 off. Redeem this gift certificate in order to be able to get $20 worth of store credit. So this is an act of purchasing, the term redemption. An Old Testament example of this would be how some people would place themselves into indentured servitude in order to pay off a debt. This was a form of slavery, but this was a mutual agreement that this person would 
be your slave in order to make a wage. Now, there is also something in the law called a kinsman redeemer, and where that person would have to step up, and because they were the next of kin, they would have to redeem that person or that property or that object that belonged to the family. We were redeemed out of servitude from the world and from Satan by the blood of Christ, and we are now enslaved to him. Jesus is our supreme kinsman redeemer, and the payment price for your soul is his blood on the cross. That's the price he paid to redeem you from your sin. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we are told here that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And obviously, a curse is the opposite of a blessing. So in order for the blessing that Abraham was given was to be received to us, sin had to be punished. And so Jesus not only took the sin upon himself, but he also takes the curse of the law upon himself, and he becomes the curse. Now, once Jesus had all the sins of the world nailed to him and imputed upon him, He was the most loathsome sight ever in the universe. We don't know if that is a physical thing or if that is strictly spiritual, but I can see both being the case. God placed the entire curse on Jesus in order that we might not bear the curse ourselves. Now, Jesus had to be divine in order for this to be performed, because no normal man could have done this. The weight of the sins of the world could not be handled by a mere mortal. He was indeed divine. So Jesus bore the curse for a season, but the story didn't end on Friday, right? We know what's coming, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. He didn't stay dead, but he bore it for a short time, and then when he died, The curse died with him. Those who belong to him are no longer subject to the curse. Because instead of being conformed to death when we die, we will be conformed to his image in eternal life, in righteousness. How glorious that is. This is strictly theoretical, but I want to pose a question to you. 
what would have happened to Gentiles like me if the Lord came as the Messiah and the nation of Israel received him? They did not reject him, but rather they received him gladly. Is it possible that the Gentiles would not have received salvation? When you think about it, Jesus died on that cross because the Jews hated him. If the Jews had loved him and put him on the throne, then he would not have died. And therefore, we would not have been redeemed from our sin. But secondly is, if the Jews did not hate those who belonged to Jesus Christ, they would not have scattered across the world. And they would not have shared the good news with the Gentiles, thus keeping the redemption of Jesus Christ exclusive to the Jews. So this had to happen this way in order for the Gentiles, like you and me, to be satisfied from the wrath of God, in order to be conformed to the image of Christ, for salvation to reach us. It had been prophesied many places that the Gentiles would receive salvation, and the Jewish people didn't understand that. But it is clearly written in their law and in the prophets. But because God did all these things for our good, we get to share in this salvation today. None of us deserved it, but we are here today because Christ has put us here. And so because he put us here, the least that we can do for him is to serve him with a whole heart and to be thankful daily for the salvation he's given us. Let me pose another situation here. Jesus died for all the sins of the world, and all of the sin was imputed to him. And so he was considered the most loathsome sight ever in the universe by certain people, especially Dr. R.C. Sproul. He was the one who came up with that term, Jesus Christ being the most loathsome sight ever in the universe. Many churches throughout history have artistically portrayed the crucifixion in almost serene tones. Regardless of your convictions concerning the appropriateness of artistic representation of the crucifixion, do you think that Christ's bearing of sin is becoming the curse on our behalf and his suffering the wrath of God on the cross was purely on a spiritual level? Or did he become the most loathsome sight ever in the universe? Personally, I think that he was the most loathsome sight in the universe, both physically as well as spiritually. God is the standard, and by God's standard, sin is disgusting to him. He cannot look upon it. And because he cannot look upon some sin, imagine having all of the sin of the universe in one spot. Most certainly, God will not look at that. So that was the only time in the entire existence of God that we know where Jesus Christ, being one of the three members of the Trinity, was separated from the Trinity. That is most likely why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken by his Father, and he was disconnected from him for the first time in history. And this was likely very frightening. But it had to be done this way because if God stayed with him, then he's okay with the sin. He 
is contradicting his own nature, and that cannot be. So yes, on a spiritual level, he was the worst thing ever. But is he the most loathsome sight in the universe physically? Yes. Why? Because his name is so reviled in our world. I think physically he was disgusting to look at too because he was beaten, he was bloody and marred and scarred and torn apart. But also his name carries so much hatred in the world. There is no name in all of history that is more controversial than the name of Jesus Christ. So there's something to be said about that. There's something that the human heart understands, but maybe not consciously, that there's something about Jesus that is of importance, whether to their shame or to their glory. And so I think that it's exactly right that he was the most loathsome sight ever in the universe. If you have a different outlook at that, I would love to hear from you if you send me an email. I would be happy to debate you on that or to discuss it further. I find this stuff fascinating. There was a theologian named Henri Blocher who wrote that concerning the crucifixion, God here makes the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person, the very operation that abolished sin. How does this tie into Israel's entire history of almost uninterrupted rebellion? Well, I think this relates well with Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And this is when Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. I think that's exactly why it happened this way. Because God had to allow certain evil acts to take place. Not that he performed them himself, but he allowed these things to happen in order for the better result to come out. And the better result to be performed was the redemption of mankind. So was it painful? Yes. Was it terrible? Yes. But was it necessary? Absolutely it was necessary, and that cannot be contested. Because if it did not happen exactly the way it did, then we would still be in our sins. This was the first half of our redemption, by the way. The work was complete, yes. But now, Christ had to prove that he was who he said he was. And that's what we will discuss next time when we explore his resurrection. Because while the redemption on the cross was complete, it had to be proven that it was complete by his rising from the grave. And because he rose from the grave, then it is confirmed that Jesus did exactly what he came to do. As we conclude today, let me point you to a couple of pieces of scriptures to consider. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And this is what it says. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. Take some time this week to reflect on what it means for you that Christ accomplished all of this for you through suffering the penalty for your sin on the cross. He did it for you. If you are chosen by God into salvation, He did it for you. It is difficult with words to describe this kind of honor and majesty that was presented to us. That is such a gift that is hard to articulate, but it is so immense and definitely worth thinking about. The second piece of scripture to look at will be 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Because Paul says in here that he decided to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So this entire study today was about Jesus Christ and him crucified, the person and the work of Christ. So take some time this week to thank God for the amazing grace that was shown toward you in Jesus Christ. What he did is amazing, and he is the only one who could have done it. God loved you first, he created you, and you could not save yourself, so therefore he came and died for you, so that you could be forgiven. That is the heart of the gospel. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.